When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Pangili Makwakwa is on a mission. The South African native wants to help others, particularly women of color, deal with their relationship with money to create the lives they want. But as you can imagine with any mission, it is often deeply personal. Pangili is a full-time entrepreneur, author, and founder of WealthyMoney.com, a company that helps women of color heal from ancestral money trauma so that they can fall in love with their bank accounts, increase income, and live their best lives. She's the author of three books and the host of two podcast shows, The Money Magic Podcast and The Property Magicians Podcast. She's also the chair of the Property Magician Stockville, which focuses on investing in properties primarily in Africa. And since its launch, it has raised over 2 million rand. She's been traveling for 15 years and has lived in over 12 countries and has been building her company as she goes. In this episode, Van Gilly shares how her financial debt put her on the path to building multiple income streams and the project she has today. She shares how she has had to prioritize her mental health after dealing with depression. She also discusses what she believes is the power of Black women in investing in their communities, especially on the African continent. Her story is a good one and a powerful one, but please be aware this is an episode that touches on mental health and suicide ideation. With that being said, welcome to the Global Chatter. All right, good day. You are listening to another brand new episode of the Global Chatter. And if you've been listening to the show for a while, you will know that sometimes these episodes are recorded early in the morning (laughs) due to the fact of where I am and where my guests are. And so I always say that if we if we sound, you know, like we've got uh, some some morning voices going on. But, you know, I am completely thrilled to have our guest on today because I think that Vangile has some stories that are going to be so impactful for those of you who are listening. So welcome to the Global Chatter. Hmm. Thank you so much, Amanda, <laughs> for having me on the show. This is so awesome. I'm excited. I know. And I, we were talking off air and, and I know, I, I think, what is it like 5am for you? Is that what you said? Yes, it's 5am in Costa Rica as I record this. <laughs> I'm so, I'm actually happy that for once I'm not the one on the, on the early side. Cause normally it's, it's me at four or five a.m. and someone is in Asia. So, uh, <laughs> kudos, yes. kudos to you because you're the you're the one who has to is a little bit earlier than I am. Oh, so, uh, <laughs> why I miss Asia, by the way, 
Like, honestly, that's the best part about living in Asia is that you're so much um, more ahead of everyone else. <laughs> but you but you know what, though? Like, OK, so I, I lived in the Middle East, right? Asia. And yes. But then, you know, what's frustrating. I found and this maybe this is not a big frustration. But for me, when it came to like doing business with people in North America, I would literally be sitting in my desk thinking, when are these people going to wake up? I have stuff to do. <laughs> I know. I promise you more than more than multiple occasions. I kept thinking, are they going to wake up sometime? And don't let them be on the West Coast. Right. Because that's just oh. the East Coast. Right. Then I'm like, these people are never waking up. <laughs> They're never. Oh. By the time they wake up, it'll be the end of the day. <laughs> My goodness, I used to have client sessions, right? And then like I used to also because uh, most of my coaches would be on the way would be on the West Coast. Of so course. I would sometimes <laughs> wake up for my coaching sessions with my coaches in the dead of night at like 2 a.m. Right. Or, like 1 a.m. It's just so hard. So, yes, there were some of those things that were hard, <laughs> but I was always ahead of everyone and everything, you know? No, that's I true. responded to things. <laughs> now I'm just, now I just look like I'm behind. <laughs> no, and it's, and it's true because one, I, you know, as I do a lot of stuff internationally. And so I'm also, I'm very mindful of when I do things because people in that part of the world often have to be the ones that sacrifice their sleep in order to do work, you know, with the rest of the world. But yeah, there was something about feeling like you got your stuff done because you were already sending out the emails and everything was getting to where it needed to be when people woke wake up. Whereas now I like, you know, before this call, I'm looking at my email and I'm like, oh, this email was sent at 3 a.m. But then I also realized time difference. <laughs> so the, the, the person has been working. So, but I, you know what? I think you just actually, in, in, in what you just said, for those who don't know where you are in the world right now, because I, I always give international context because our guests are all over the world. Where are you currently again, right at this moment? <laughs> At this moment, I'm in a tiny little town called Sitiomata in Costa Rica. Okay. So I, this is always a loaded question with white people. <laughs> so you, you are in Costa Rica. How long have you been in Costa Rica? I've been in Costa Rica for a month right now. Uh, before then, I was uh, in Mexico for six months. Mm hmm. Nice. Yeah. What part of Mexico? I was in a tiny little town called Puerto Escondido in Oaxaca province. Oaxaca has become really, really popular in recent years. Right. No, yeah. for sure. Now, and uh, I'm beginning to feel like you have a you have a flair for small, cool little towns. <laughs> I do. Puerto Escondido was gorgeous. Um, yeah. I really, really fell in love with Mexico, but I've always lived in little towns actually on my travels. I'm not, um, I mean, not always, but I've gravitated towards little towns versus big cities. I'm not a big city person. To be fair, I, you know, I realize I'm not a terribly big city person either. Like I, I don't yeah. mind cities, but I realize 
especially the older I get, I like smaller cities. Like I want those that have enough with character, but yeah. I, I'm not going to, I'm not going to lie. I do tend to find New York and I've always found New York very overwhelming. Mm. Um, but I think it's also, I just don't like having a lot of people around me. Yes. <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. So, cause New York itself to me is interesting in terms of there's things to do and there's food, you know, like, and there's people like, it's interesting. You, I feel like you can never be bored in New York, but mm. just having so many people around and I'm like, why are you around? <laughs> like, why are you near me? Why is there not space? I know it's very self-centered. I, There's no just, space, please. Give me my <laughs> space. Right. <laughs> and, and so I always, I, I feel you on some of those sort of smaller places where I'm like, oh, I can get there at my own time. Yes. You know, people are kind of friendly. <laughs> so, I mean, I mean, let's kind of dig a little bit into your backstory. Where did you grow up, though? Um, I grew up in South Africa. So um, I was born in a tiny little village called Chagastat in Pumalanga, South Africa. And that's right next to the border of Swaziland. And then I... Moved around quite a bit for schooling, so but mainly everything happened in South Africa until I was like 21. Then I just left the country and just went traveling. And so people's international stories are, are kind of fascinating to me, obviously, because mm-hmm. I have this, this podcast. What was the catalyst that that said, OK, I wanted you wanted to leave South Africa and even with your traveling, was it mainly within South Africa or did you even go to neighboring countries or other countries off the continent? I didn't. Well, up until I was maybe 19, I had never left South Africa. And then I got to UCT, the University of Cape Town. Mm -hmm. And I just started traveling. I went to Namibia. uh, And that was my first ever a travel out of the country on my own. I was 19. I went, I got my passport and I was like, I'm doing this. <laughs> and I left school Well, I left <laughs> lectures and everything. It just felt really important <laughs> to me to just go and not worry about anything else. So then I just left and I went traveling and it has been an incredible experience. Um, But I started off in Namibia and I had the best time of my life. I met the most random people. I had, I made friends. I just explored. I saw things that I'd never seen. I took the longest taxi rides of my life through the desert. I worried about the bathroom. I... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I think I always like say like my first, I don't know how people feel about the travel, about traveling, but it's the stopping in small little towns and random bathrooms that always just like has me having the wildest adventures where you're right. trying to <laughs> keep your bag on the door, where you're trying to not step on things. So that was my first experience. And I was like, this is amazing. I love it. <laughs> <laughs> I need to do this. <laughs> I'm laughing as you're talking about bathrooms because 
I mean, especially if you've never been to a country before, all good stories and bad stories can start in a bathroom. And yeah. I, <laughs> and here's, here's where I'm, I'm, I'm curious too. I, I think it's funny, especially when you travel for the first time, often we go to the countries that are near us, which you did or relatively near us. What was being in, I mean, you grew up in South Africa, right? Yeah. Were there things that when you went to Namibia, you were like, oh, I'm seeing this for the first time. Like, this is not something I've, you know, we necessarily do or have in, in South Africa. Yes. The, I mean, we have the Karoo Desert, but I mean, honestly, to have the desert like that and then to be in Swakopmund, where like the desert and the ocean were meeting, you know, that was like really, really incredible for me. I mean, just all that desert was amazing. And also just like, um, I think that like the filling stations in South Africa are pretty organized in many ways. And like yeah. the bathrooms tend to be really, really good at filling stations. I mean, really, really decent, almost most places. So to then get to Namibia and then to just have that whole experience made me really feel like this is just a whole different vibe, you know? And I was like, what else am I missing? I think South Africans are very friendly in general, but in Namibia, people were so much more friendlier. It was that, Mm. okay, it's one thing for people to be friendly in your country because you speak the language and everything, but for I mean, everyone in Namibia speaks English and Afrikaans, so it wasn't too hectic, but they also have their own local languages. But for everyone to just be that extra friendly, it was also the first time where strangers just kind of, I didn't know the country. So people just kind of like embraced me and took me under their wings. And I was like this doughy-eyed and bushy-tailed 19-year-old. And I was like, this is amazing. I can... Mm really, really do this thing because I don't, I can just rely on the kindness of strangers and just rely on human goodness in general. So would you say, or, and it it's clear that that trip had a impact on you. Was that for you, you felt like kind of the starting point of you were going to have this international life at some point? I always knew I was going to have an international life. I think back to where my travel interest came from was high school. So I remember just, this was a big point for me around my depression when I struggled. I struggled a lot with depression in my teens. But one of the, one of the other factors was this concept that you have to wake up and go to school and kind of do the same thing over and over again. And I always felt like, why am I doing this? Why am I even bothering with studies and all this stuff? Because I know that one day I'm just going to be going around the world. I'm not going to be sitting in an office. I just kind of had that intuitive feeling that like, I'm going to be exploring different parts of the world, different cultures, different languages, and a lot of what I was doing wasn't actually preparing me for that life. Mm. You know, you've, you've touched on a couple of things and I, having worked in education for a long time, I, it's not surprising in the sense that I think often students do struggle with what is it that I'm doing right now, especially the students that have a, a general clear path. 
Mm. What am I doing right now that really connects with my future? And it's really hard to hold an attention span, right? If you can't see, especially when you're younger, because you don't have the same experiences as an adult where you can kind of lean on and say, maybe like you understand a little bit better how to transferable skills or how to connect the dots. It's harder when you're younger. And so yeah, I, I could see that how that could be a challenge, right? Because it's totally right. It's so like, how concept. do I, right. Well, I mean, even, I think even now as an adult, right. I, I meet people who are, I want to do these things, but I don't know how I can reconcile it. And so I think mm. that there's that. And I think there's that's part that part irrespective of of who you are. And yeah. then, you know, the layer, of course, of of your mental health and your mental wellness on top yeah. of that. Right. And yeah. and and I'm very I'm curious. This is this is the counselor in me. People know this. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, being a young person in South Africa was with the depression that that you were dealing with was it recognized by your family um oh yeah okay so actually i didn't even know i was depressed i went to a really good school and um they called and one day i was doing i was in grade seven i must i was like 14 and I was doing drama. So we had to do two extracurricular, two cultural activities in one spot or two spots in one cultural activity. So I did drama and debating and then I did swimming. Um, and so one of the things that, uh, that we had to do one day in drama was just talk about how we're feeling and create a play and act it out. And, uh, Brilliant concept, right? Like, right. It was, I mean, like in the first uh, term already. And I started talking about me and what I was going through. And instantly the drama teacher paused everything. And she was like, I'm going to get um, the psychologist, the school psychologist. And our school had an um, a psychologist, like a proper trained therapist, on the premises and students could go see her at any given time. And so she was brought in to rewatch everything. I had to re-explain everything. And before I knew it, the class was dismissed and I was taken out with the drama teacher, with the psychologist, and they brought in the principal and it just wow. became a thing. And from then on, I was in therapy from the time I was in grade seven until the very last day of my school in grade 12. So it was very, very much recognized. And I think it's really, really interesting because from the time I was 14, I had the language around mental health. I'd had, Mm. I'd been getting therapy since I was uh, twice a week. So I just kind of had this understanding that mental health is a thing and that there are resources and tools that you can work with. That's kind of amazing in the sense that, you know, as, as you and I have talked earlier, many people know my background is West African. We don't always have the conversations framed that way and we don't even always have the conversations And even when the conversations are there about mental health, they are not always accompanied by resources because access and limitations are there. So 
you know, I have most certainly met young people <laughs> in where I am right now who have had that language and maybe even younger, right? Yeah. Um, around mental health. But I, I, I even when I think back to my childhood, didn't really hear or see it. And I and I was in some privileged spaces and I own that. So mm. to hear that at least there was support is yes. pretty, pretty cool. I mean, it, and it may not have always felt the best at the time too as a, as a teenager, but not at I, you all. Know, right. <laughs> I mean, I'm being honest. It's like you're also diagnosed at 14. I worked with 14, 15, 16, 17 year olds. <laughs> so, you know, you know, yeah. everything else is also going up and down hormones, right? Um, yeah. <laughs> so, I yeah. genuinely felt like it was one of the best things that happened to me because I would look, I don't know about other teens that I in therapy, but I would look forward to those one, to those two one hour sessions in a week. Because I think as a teenager, where else do you have the space to, unpack what you're going through you know and to really truly share and just be heard and feel heard and really hear your own thoughts right right so I think that I feel like that's such an important resource because the rest of society is either treating you like a child or like an adult and you're neither of those things and At home, coming from an African family. So ironically, my mom's a nurse, so she would know more about mental health. She just clocked it up as you're crazy. That's why you're going to uh, a therapy. That's why you're going to therapy. Like literally, that was her entire chat. And that was that, which kind of also drove me a little (laughs) wild. Yeah. But at home, you're also, you're like coming from an African family, you weren't like given the space to really just have your mood swings and to just fully be yourself and to really say I'm angry. So much of that people try to control, you know? Right. So it was always clocked up to you're just this rude and moody human being as opposed to you're a full human being that is having their own process and that has to be respected. But in the family, it's like you're a child, you have to follow um, these rules, you have to, you're living under my roof, all these things, you know? So it was yeah. really, really difficult in that regard. And we have very stringent, if you will, cultural mores, right? Mm. Because anytime you exhibit something that's a little bit different, people get nervous. Oh, yeah. And, and they don't necessarily always know how to handle it and partially because let's be honest you don't want to be the family that's talked about <laughs> right Always. because these are very communal societies and very communal um people groups right so yeah. <laughs> it yeah. sometimes it's not even that there there isn't i mean if you remove lack of understanding and lack of knowledge right that's a don- yeah. <laughs> that's its own category <sighs> sometimes it's that coupled with or I, you know, not even that. Sometimes it's just, what will people say? And that, the, you know, mm-hmm. it, that that vibe is pretty strong in <laughs> some of our African communities. Uh, totally, um, right? So 
I went to a predominantly white school, a private school in South Africa. So you can only imagine, right. like there were maybe 5% of the school had people of color. The rest, the 95% were white and it was all girls. And so now you have this dynamic and the cultures, and this is just right after 1994, right? Yeah. So we are like really relatively the new generation that's just come in after integration and the Rainbow Nation uh, PR stuff that they've now pulled. Now you're coming into the school. And remember, they South Africa is still working, even till this day, still working through some deep racial trauma. But then it was just really being covered up with, it's over, it's now cool, now we're moving on. So now you're coming into this environment. Well, and I mean, I'd kind of grown up in those kinds of schools, but still you're in that environment my parents have been sending me to this, this school since a young age, right? Since I was like literally in a primary school. And so my thinking was really different and even how I was looking at the world and how I was seeing it, how I was interacting with them, right? It was completely yeah. different to how they had interacted with their parents. So even though we're growing up in the same country, but my experience is different. The exposure that I'm having is different. There's a lot more westernization. There's a lot more everything. So things are being taken as like, this child is so rude. <laughs> often, right. 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 And my mother would often have this thing about don't embarrass me at school. And of course, then I start therapy and I start talking openly everywhere at school about my family drama because I'm in therapy and like therapy has now taken away the shame of what's been going on in my family oh that was just it right like my parents just dealt they just had no other option they just were like oh this is how it is now you know right so I was talking about it everywhere no jokes and I still do so I feel like it's a <laughs> good thing for them because it trained them for what I do now for a living because my parents do not bat an eyelid right now they just couldn't be bothered you know right they just continue with their lives like my mother hears that oh you went the greatest mom the greatest parent she just goes yeah no I'm fine with that. I think I'm happy with how I did. You know, she doesn't. <laughs> and, and you and you know what though? Here's the thing. A for her to be at that point, and I'm assuming you still have a relationship with them. Yeah, definitely we do. <laughs> is pretty impressive. You know what I mean? Like honestly, <laughs> it's sort of like, okay, this is how I did, this is what I had with what I did. And I think also if if we listen closely to what you just said too is that you also recognize where they were coming from. Yes. And that's powerful. And you know yes. the concept. And it doesn't mean that parents always do something that's right or always perfect. But you mm -hmm. also recognize a context, which honestly, I would say is very trying, irrespective of your background, just because of the very public history of South Africa, right? And mm. then being in the midst of that transition, which yes. was not that long ago. So, you know, yeah, you're asking, it's, you almost can't judge them for it because you're asking parents to have a complete mind shift while a country is trying to have a mind shift in the midst yeah. of, of a lot of turmoil. 
All right. So we're back after the break. And as you were listening, you heard her story in terms of being a young person in South Africa and and really this conversation around mental health, which I always appreciate as someone who thinks mental wellness is incredibly important and we should always be talking about it. So we know that you go to college at the University of Cape Town and then you will ultimately come to the United States for your master's degree. Mm -hmm. So let's talk a little bit about that experience. What was happening there? Oh, yeah. I just came to uh, do my MBA because, you know, I so like I said, I was at university. I start traveling. I go to Namibia when I'm 19. Then at uh, right after university, I want to start traveling. I decide I get a job on a cruise ship. But part of the thing with this job, part of my contractual agreement is that I have to pay for my own flight to get there. Um, I don't mm-hmm. have that kind of money to pay for a flight, but they will arrange everything else for me. So I don't have to worry about visas, nothing. They'll just do everything. So big, big issue is I'm like, how am I going to pay for this flight? Um, I go to the bank. One day the bank swallows. I go to the ATM and the ATM literally swallows my bank card. And it's a public holiday. Yeah. And I can't get money. (laughs) It becomes like this horrible experience. (laughs) Then I have to go back to the bank after like three or four days when the public holiday is over and the banks are open. And I'm like, hey, the ATM swallowed my card and they're like, oh, as we're looking at this, did you know you also qualify for a credit card? Now, my parents are very anti-credit and debt. So I was like, why do I need a credit card? And I kid you not, the teller goes, have you ever wanted to travel? I am all ears (laughs) now. And this is how my entire journey with credit cards started, by the way. So I'm just like, what? And she's like, yeah, I see that you've been doing, um, cause I'd also had part-time jobs. So she was like, I see that you're working already. And I was like in my fourth year of varsity at the time. And I was, I'd managed to, from third year, get myself into a proper mining and energy job. I passed the exams and everything. And they were like, wow, you understand economics and trends. Would you? And they um, said, yes, I could work at the office and be a mining and energy analyst. So I really had like a career <laughs> when I was mm. in varsity because I was like, I really love what I do. I'm just going to go get a proper job and negotiate for it. So they saw that I had a salary coming in every month. And they were like, wait a minute, sis, get, get your credit card so you can go traveling. So I get my credit card. I go traveling, but on my travels, I'm busy. I'm working on a cruise line. I'm busy gallivanting around the world and being and waitressing and taking peace jobs and everything. And at some point, um, one of the things that happened on the cruise line was I was like, I hate this job, <laughs> you know? So I want mm-hmm. an option. And for whatever reason in my head, I was like, I'm going to go do the G I'm going to go write my GMAT and you have to negotiate with the captain of the cruise ship, because if you get left behind, then it's a whole thing and you can be sent <laughs> home. Right. Then like, 
you know, all these things have to happen. So I go and I talk to him and I'm like, I have to write this GMAT. It's really, really important. I'm working 16 hour days. I literally spend four hours a day sleeping, two hours a day studying for the GMAT, 16 hours working. I was exhausted. I was done for. But I wrote the GMAT and then I got into schools in the US. It would take me another two years really to get it together and accept, no, another year to get it together and accept some of the um, invitations and the partial scholarships. Uh, But one day I then left and I went to Trinidad, uh, Trinidad and Tobago. I found myself on the beach. I'd just gone through a really horrible, when I say horrible breakup, I mean horrible breakup. And I was on the ocean in Tobago. I was on the beach in Tobago. And I was like, I think I should respond to these applications and say yes to something because <laughs> I'm now right. in debt. I've got heartbreak. What am I doing with my life? You know, <laughs> but you're in Trinidad and Tobacco. <laughs> yeah. But like, I've been heartbroken. Uh, no, I know. Like, I got <laughs> right. I mean, you were, you were mentally there, but I get it. I, the rest of us are like, but she's on and the it was amazing. Anyway, Can I just say, so like <laughs> my heartbreak really went within 24 hours, but now I'm starting like, <laughs> I don't have like a real game plan. You know, I'm worried about my debt and that like in every country I'm living in, I'm just getting credit cards and using credit cards to move <laughs> forward. Wow. And I have it in my head, like somehow that if I go and I do an MBA, I'm going to go into investment banking. I'm going to go into private equity. I'm going to make lots of money. And by the time I'm 40, I'm going to retire and I'm going to be wealthy. The plan takes shape in my head and it makes sense, which is how I ended up in Boston, Massachusetts in grad school and how everything took me where I am now. What did you think or what did you intend that the MBA was going to do for you? So what was your hope at the end of completing it? Um, Exactly that. Like literally, I had this notion in my head. This was before I think I didn't really understand how many people get master's degrees. In my head, I felt if you have an MBA, you're employable. So that means that I'll have my pick of employers anywhere in the world. And I will be able to get jobs wherever I want. And it will give me access into the investment banking field. Because in my head, if you're an investment banker, then there's no way you could struggle financially. You are always making good money. That's fair. (laughs) (laughs) That's fair. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I'm. <laughs> I'm gonna remove myself out of this conversation. I, but yes, know, you are totally. I know that, you understand no, this. <laughs> we had right? a conversation. <laughs> <laughs> <All right. laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you know. Thank you. Thank you for your thoughts on that. And no, but you're not. You're not wrong, yeah. right? I mean, and here's the thing: it's not different from any yes. other field. Why do some people become doctors? Obviously, because they want to help and care for people. That's some folks. There are other people who are looking for stability, right? Same thing with engineering. So, I mean, nothing you've said, and I think nothing you've said is out of the ordinary. And so I, 
I guess then what, when you completed, what happened next? Because you, you did, you know, part of this was driven by the fact that you had debt, yes. right? And I, I love, and I was saying this offline, y'all, that I love the fact that she said her, when I, when you ask her her occupation, she says money trauma <laughs> coach. So I want to know how she got there and how does one find that occupation? And this is exactly how it happened. So, you know, I have this dream now. So I go into the MBA program. I work myself ragged. Well, maybe not too ragged because I was still, so I'm in the MBA program. I'm still jetting off to the Caribbean as often <laughs> right. as possible. Of course. So clearly my debt wasn't deterring me from doing things. And the ironic thing, when I think about it, so I go to this program and then I take on $30,000 more in debt. Mm-hmm. And then I take on another $10,000 more to do an entrepreneurship certificate. But remember, I'm working from this paradigm that it doesn't matter at this point that I'm $60,000 in debt and I owe people and everything. Everything's going to be great. You're going to finish and you're going to get a, you're going to get an incredible job. And I'm in Boston, Massachusetts. So it makes sense that like, I'll be close to New York. I'm going to love it. I'm going to go there and do interviews and move to New York and get a job. Then something unexpected happens. One, 2008, the American economy takes a dump. I'm like, what is happening? This is where the narrator what? says, spoiler alert, <laughs> it did not happen that way. <laughs> Sorry, and I shouldn't laugh. This was Nate was terrible, but I just knew it was coming. All right, so the most unexpected thing oh in a generation happens. <laughs> right, the most unexpected Next thing. Next to COVID, that would happen a decade <sighs> or so later. But anyway, go ahead. Right? So that's just, I'm just like, what is happening right now? You know, this is not going according to plan, but still try to keep to the plan. And then something really crazy happens. Somehow I graduate, not somehow, I graduate really well, actually. Like I have a great GPA, everything's going according to plan. I've been like straight A in that regard, but the external circumstances are not working with me. Mm. And then I start having panic attacks with money. Every time I handle money, every time I talk about money, every time I do anything with money, I have a panic attack. And I'm like, you know, at first you're like, okay, this is because remember, I have like experience with mental health. Right. So I'm like, I am having a panic attack. This is not okay. And then the old feelings from my teens start resurfacing. I'm like, this is not possible. Like this, these are signs of my depression. This is not happening. What is happening? And I have no clue because I have a plan. I have no clue what's happening. And this is, it almost feels like it's coming out of left field, but it isn't. I feel like when I looked at it at the time, I started to really understand, even though I was fighting it. Remember when I was at the height of my depression, I was at an all-girls high school. Yeah. And then I went to the Simmons School of Management, which at the time, I don't know if it still is, was the only all-women's MBA program. Mm -hmm. So I found myself in the same situation where there's very few people of color. So the dynamics were very similar. So external events like that have the ability to trigger us into old childhood memories and things are happening and you're not even aware of it. Right. Mm. 
And in my teens, another thing that had happened was my mom had lost her job and my family had had deep issues around money. So even though I was going to this private school, my dad was paying, but I was living with my mom and my maternal family, the extended family, and they were deeply struggling financially at the time, even though everyone around there had a degree and even um, my uncle was earning like in the 1% of South mm-hmm. Africans. But again, it is the, it's a whole concept of having money, but not being able to use it and keep it and how people earned lots of money. But by the fifth of the month, people were extremely broke. So I lived that. Um, and I don't know how, but like I remember very distinctly uh, coming back from a trip um, in the Caribbean uh, from Trinidad and just having this experience when I landed in Boston again and just having this feeling that like I don't have enough money and money's going to run out. And then it just started going and I kept trying to fight it, fight it, fight it because these were the same thoughts and emotions that I had in my teens. But by the time I literally graduated, things were really, really bad with me emotionally. But I think I knew how to keep up a good face and how to just stick to the plan. That was my whole thing. So when the recession hit and I realized that the plan wasn't going to happen, I started panicking. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it had to do with money. You know, I done all these things, taken on debt, taken on loans, done everything with this plan in mind. So when the plan wasn't starting to, when things weren't going according to plan, I started to panic and freak out. And then I found myself in this really crazy situation where I just was panicking around money and eventually got to the point where I couldn't get out of bed and I was so depressed I couldn't get out of bed. I couldn't answer emails. Like I was telling people, like I always tell people the craziest thing about depression that like always just fascinates me. And even now looking back when I'm not in that situation, I'm like, it just fascinates me how like even the idea of sending out an email, typing out a two sentence email would take me all day to do because it's just the distance between doing that, getting out of bed and doing that was so much. Uh, brushing your teeth, getting dressed, cleaning your room. Everything just feels hard. There's no other way to describe it. It just feels difficult. It feels impossible. So I was then in this situation and I was like, what is happening? And I knew for me it was tied to money, you know. I could see it. So then with that, what was the thing that got you out of that headspace? Mm. So actually, you're not going to expect this. <laughs> but I went to one of the things that I did was I read tarot cards because I didn't have any money and I didn't know how to make uh, money. And I've always read tarot. I come from a family of shamans in South Africa. Mm-hmm. So... I'd read tar- I was reading tarot cards at the Boston Tea House, and one day I went to my fellow tarot card readers, and he read in the cards, he said, you plan to take your life. And I just kept quiet and sat there and started crying, and he was like, I can see it. And I'd had it all planned. Like, I had, like, this insane, like, looking back now and thinking about it, I think 
yeah, there's a lot. So trigger warning for a lot of people that are going through this. Mm, I had a whole plan in my life about how I was going to take my life and end my life. And somehow it came out in the tarot reading. And at the same time, a friend of mine had told me about Vipassana meditation. And the guy said to me, Raymond was his name. And Raymond said to me, I see in these cards that you've also got a retreat of some sort planned. Everything's going to change in your life at this retreat. And I was thinking, I've done therapy. I've done so much. What could possibly change from going to a Vipassana meditation retreat? Literally. And he said to me, promise me you're not going to do anything until you go to this retreat. And I started crying and I said, I Mm. promise Raymond. He was like, Van, don't do it. Just hold on because I can see in in these cards that if you can just get to the other end. And this was maybe I did the reading in February. The retreat was in uh, the end of March. He was like, Mm. it's only a few more weeks. Hold on. Now, if you're in that space, just holding on a few more weeks feels impossible. Mm -hmm. Every day is a fight. It's like you're literally fighting to get through an hour. So somehow I did because I had this knowledge and I'm forever grateful for that. And I went to Vipassana and I kid you not, by day six of Vipassana, I was throwing up acid and I was able to see the habit pattern of my mind. I was able to feel into the sensations in my body. By day eight, um, I would, we'd wake up and we'd have like little boots where you can meditate on your own from 4am to 6am. And I'll never forget that day, like day eight, suddenly this insane peace that I'd never felt in my life started to overcome me. And it just felt like no matter what happens, no matter how badly I feel, how bad in the dumps I am, I'm going to be okay. Mm -hmm. You know, And now I have episodes of deep sadness, but never depression. So this was about 12 years, 11 years ago. And I have never felt like I want to take my own life again. I've never felt that level of depression ever again. And this is then how I started looking into trauma and looking into how trauma lives in the body. Because in that meditation session. I also had a lot of past life revelations. In those 10 days, I went into past lives. I started to really understand um, my how like some of the stuff was not my own, was passed down from lifetime to lifetime. Mm-hmm. And I was also able to see how it was passed down from one generation to the next. So a lot happened in those 10 days. But also I went into those 10 days saying, I'm going to do all the meditation and follow the rules and do everything. Because I had this knowledge from this tarot reader that if I do that, I would have this incredible transformation. I didn't know what the transformation would be, but I didn't expect that it would be that like, I would never like that. My depression would live so radically. I mean, I walked out of there and I've just never, like I said, had a suicidal thought since that day, since the Pasna. Oh my gosh. I mean, you, first of all, kudos to you for being transparent because these are not necessarily the easiest things to talk about and, and not always the things that folks 
are comfortable and, and it may not be comfortable for you. It's just, but it may be necessary, right? Sometimes we share things that are not always yeah. the most comfortable, but they're the most necessary, yes. right? And, yep. and, and yep. the ideas that we have about money and what gets passed down and how we feel about it and how it can trigger a response. I think that's very real. And mm-hmm. I think, especially as you yes. alluded to, especially when you come from communities where you may not have always had, right? There mm-hmm. is definitely some emotional history with money and we don't always recognize it. Yep. Right. And we don't yep. always recognize it. Yep until something triggers a response. And then we realize, oh, we are having a reaction to how we may have grown up and what we've internalized. And we don't always know what yes. we internalize. And, and and often that's why we go to therapy and we go to other folks because we hope that in talking with someone, they can also sort of shed light or bring out or help us reflect or guide you know, us in actually saying, hey, are you aware that this is here? And can and help you connect mm. the dots, and so I think it's it's a lot, and and so you know with with that knowledge and your experiences, I would imagine that this is what's kind of guided your work, right? As as you work in in wealth and and taking obviously your formalized training, but your experiential training, right? Meaning your lived experiences and working mm. with others. Does that sound about right? Oh yeah. Yeah, I mean, totally. This is uh, this is what guides me in so much of what I do. I think, I think it's it becomes easier to not easier, but I think because of this, I it's been something that like I can deeply understand when people are going like I am depressed. That this is there's a lot more to it and. I think it's also guided my work in that my work is very much that like I look at money trauma, but my my exploration of trauma goes beyond just your childhood and this particular lifetime. It's like I'm looking at how, uh, like, let's go into past lives. Let's go into ancestral work. Let's look at like how... um, your ancestors behaved with money from one generation to the next? What are some of the money stories, the beliefs and um, emotions around money that were passed on? And also, I think that we often think that trauma is this loud thing, you know, that it's the trauma with a capital T, that it's the, it's the big things that happen in our lives. Meanwhile, trauma is like, small things that happen in our lives, right? It's the tiny, tiny little things um, that we often don't talk about. And it's often, and sometimes how trauma is passed down from one generation to the next, it's also trauma responses around money. So you may not even be aware of it, but your nervous system is co-regulating to your mother's nervous system when she's budgeting. She's not having to say anything. She's not screaming. She's not shouting. She's not even behaving in a particular manner. But every time she's managing money or doing something with money, your nervous system is feeling into that and co-regulating to that and learning that that's how you have to feel about Mm. money. And then the nervous system 
because the nervous system and the subconscious mind are interconnected, then you're starting to think about you're forming stories based on the nervous system response. And this can be passed down from generation to generation until eventually someone catches it or until it becomes so big that we can no longer ignore it or whatever generation can no longer ignore it, right? Because it starts to impact our behavior with money. So this is for me what like, I love to look at is, oh, this is how you behave with money. Sometimes it doesn't even make logical sense because people will say, no, I didn't have any kind of crazy conversations. There weren't fights in my family. There was nothing outward around money. Then we have to look at other things like how did you feel in your body? Let's go into the body. You know, let's really work with the nervous system and you work with the present basically to work backwards and try and uncover what memories the body's holding onto from the past. Mm. I mean, I look, here's the funny part. I was like, I could listen to t- you talk about this all day, but then I think it's important <laughs> for people to know you've got two podcasts. So, 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 it's, <laughs> so it's not as if you're not talking about this, but one thing, one thing I want to make sure you know, I, I want to bring up is because, and you are highly mobile and I love it. We've had certainly had people on here who, yeah. you know, home is where they put their head, right? Every night. And so you are, yeah, it's a global definitely. chatter. It's not, you're not the first one I've had who, who has a pretty nomadic life. But one of the things that I, that really impressed upon me was this investment group that you started, right? Um, and I would mm-hmm. like you to talk just a little bit about that because you know, you clearly have a passion for talking about money, connecting it to life's purpose, especially for, as we would say, underrepresented populations, but especially, you know, that can also be people of color, depending on where you live and what they use, but especially women of color. But tell me a little bit about the Wealthy Ones property, because um, I, I love this investment concept that you've got going on. <laughs> Yeah. Oh, yeah. Sorry. I just realized that we changed the name to the Property Magician Stockfell. Nice. <laughs> so Stockfell is kind of, um, it's named after our podcast, the Property Magicians mm-hmm. Podcast. And Stockfell is basically an investment fund. So this is an investment fund made up of various women of color from different parts of the world. We started this fund because not many people can afford to invest in real estate to the point where they are buying buildings, they are buying or like they are investing in huge developments. Most people can afford to buy houses like they are residential home, right? And then maybe refinance it and get the next home and it can take a while. But the idea is that In Africa, as a continent, we tend to do things collectively, including investing. So from time immemorial, we would usually come together in different African countries. And I know you know this, Amanda, where you pull your resources together and then you may pull those resources to help uh, a particularly bright yep. child go to university and use the uh, the community funds to take them through college and they come back and they help the community. So the idea also works with uh, 
buying land, with buying um, with uh, buying property. So we decided that we're going to use this to buy property. We're going to open this up to and call it a stock file, which is what we know in our language, right? It's a stock file, which is an investment fund. When you say investment fund, it has Western connotations and a lot of people get lost in that. So we then collectively as groups of women they get to join this fund and we then get to start investing in different properties and in different um, uh, property schemes, I guess. So we've started off by investing in developers and giving developers, a lot of black developers don't get funding from banks. So giving them um, opportunities and funding them. But now we're actually moving away from that concept for many reasons. We're going to talk to the members and we would like to be the ones that own our own buildings mm. and our own assets. I think that where you're more in control because the idea was that you invest in the developers, they give you a return on investment because you're kind of like an alternative funding source for these developers. And, um, and then uh, we get the money back, but now we want to take that money and we want to, we'd rather use it to buy assets and really create our own passive streams of income mm-hmm. because building generational wealth isn't something that um, is easily done, I guess, if you don't earn a certain amount of right. money. But if you're a collective, even having $100 or $200, then you can own a portion of a real estate. In You can own a portion of a property and start creating or collecting that passive um, income through rent. And even then you can choose as the collective that you're not going to take any of that rental income. Instead, you're going to use it to buy more buildings and buy more buildings and buy more buildings. So even if someone has like just a small little percentage of this fund, right, they still would end up because you, even if you end up having a 1% of this, of the company, over time, that 1% will grow because you've invested in this and we're building a company that's going to last for a long time that will continue to accumulate assets. So that's one way to start uh, building generational wealth. And I mean, our focus is women of color for very obvious reasons, especially women on the African continent, mm-hmm. because you don't usually get access to um, these Uh, You don't usually get access to a platform where your voice is heard, you know, where people like you are representing you in terms of making financial decisions and investment decisions. And I really, really understanding where you're coming from. Oh, my gosh. Um, (laughs) I'm sitting here cheering (laughs) you on um, because one thing and as we are wrapping up is that to see someone, one, to have a story coming off of the African continent, two, to be very vulnerable about mental health, three, to talk about debt, <laughs> four, to be highly mobile still as an, as an African woman, and then to be building businesses that can go with you wherever you are and to help and support yeah. other women of color globally to have opportunities is crazy awesome. 
<laughs> it is it is crazy awesome and i am sitting here just thinking to myself oh god i need to have her back on again <laughs> because <laughs> i'm already in the back of my mind going yeah she'll be back there are a couple of people that i can have come back she's gonna be back because she may she, she may back. just have to do a straight like show on like investing like while abroad <laughs> And so, oh my goodness! I, oh man, that's a whole. Other that's what story. I'm saying, Gosh, right? Like, like we oh, we're gonna do this, and I I rarely we're gonna talk about I, this. And also, I, just, I rarely can I just tell you the struggle of having international people in the stock file and right. just having the exchange controls that we have in South Africa. You know what? You're definitely, you're definitely going to oh, be like, I know this is, I'm like, <laughs> oh, how am I going to make this work? It doesn't matter. I'll make it work. I always make it work, but good God. Thank you. <laughs> thank you so much for all of that. I'm, I, I, I feel like y'all are going to have to stay tuned because she's going to come back, but this is a taste of her story. And so she, as, as you would have heard in the intro, podcast host, got two podcasts. That'll be in the show notes, has a website that'll be in the show notes and on the web and our website, you know, has this investment program, has three books, <laughs> which will also be in the show notes. <laughs> but I, I am so grateful for your time with me this morning because if for nothing else, I think just introducing your story to an even wider audience and I and I'm watching yes. your growth is important. And so yeah, I just I, I I'm still digesting <laughs> what you said about the investment, but I am I am so <laughs> glad that we both got up early this morning for this. <laughs> yes, I am too. Thank you so much, Amanda. This has been amazing. Thank you for having me on the And show. I love in the background that the day is starting in Costa Rica as I'm slowly hearing animals. <laughs> it's like a perfect end to this episode. <laughs> It really, really is. I'm actually going to go back to bed for just uh, for like three hours. <laughs> You've just listened to an episode of The Global Chatter, which is hosted by me, Amanda Bates. It is edited by Stephanie Ficcio. Don't forget to subscribe to The Global Chatter on your favorite podcast platform. You can also follow us on Instagram at The Global Chatter or stop by Twitter and find us at Global Chat Pod. If you have a question, want to subscribe to the newsletter, or are interested in sponsoring, visit theglobalchatter.com. dot com.